Welcome back to 1A, a podcast from First Presbyterian Church of Columbia, South Carolina. 1A is designed to take a brief but in-depth look at counseling issues from a pastoral perspective. Reverend Squires is the pastor of counseling here at First Presbyterian Church, and I'm Josh Adair, his intern for biblical counseling. This is the ninth episode in our series on sexuality and sex, and today we attempt to wrap up our entire discussion by discussing a Christian understanding of what sexuality says in regard to marriage and celibacy, and we also discuss how it might be challenged in the future. If you have any comments about our show or a question about something you hear on this episode, please don't hesitate to contact us. You can find all of our contact info on our website at firstpresscolumbia.org. We hope this ministry is a blessing to you and those around you. Let's get to the conversation. Well, welcome back, Josh Dare. Welcome back to you, Joshua Squires. <laughs> so let's see, we are on episode, you say nine? We're I believe it's nine. Nine I'm episodes. I'm losing, t- losing count here. <laughs> wow. It's a lot of episodes on sex. Sex is a big topic. It, it Indeed, it is a big topic. So yeah, we w- welcome back to our show for sure. So 1A, we're glad to be back. And Josh, we've we've been discussing primarily what's a Christian view of our sexuality as it regards to our current cultural understanding of sexuality. Right. We've said our our culture operates operates out of a consumerist view of sexuality that says this is about me, this is something for me to consume. Yep. But we've also been talking about a biblical paradigm for our sexuality. And we, we see in Scripture a paradigm of sexuality that involves procreation, consummation, pleasure, and it's, it's, it's love as well, something to build up our love yep. as a tool for intimacy. Today we're going to talk about a particular area. We've been also discussing a series of seasons of life where we understand how our sexuality and our our expressions of sexuality might change. We, we talked about singleness, the big challenges there are pornography. Today we're going to discuss marriage and celibacy, and then we're also going to begin to, uh, or attempt, I should say, dis- discuss how this view of sexuality might even be challenged in the near or not so distant future. Right. So that brings us to our conversation as it relates to, to marriage, Josh. Yeah. And so I wanted to begin today and ask, how do you see this consumerist view of sex that we've discussed manifesting itself in marriages today? Well, I think first and foremost, what you see is a demand for sex, that I have this sexual need that must be fulfilled. Sure. And again, usually one or the other of the spouses has a higher sexual need. More often than not, that's going to be the man versus the woman. And when you're in that particular configuration, it can feel very easy for the man to get to a point where it's like, look, this is a need I have. I have to have my need for sex and sexuality be met or otherwise I'm going to end up meeting it through pornography or through some other means almost like saying I have a need to breathe yeah and there's there's such a strong obligation that one spouse can put on another because of the way that we believe the lie that this is a biological need, as you mentioned last time. Yes, that's right. So uh, I think the the number one thing for couples is they come in, when they come in with this particular issue, there are, uh, there are other issues around sex and sexuality that couples deal with, and it can be things like painful intercourse or you know all, all kinds of things like that that are very mm-hmm. specialized sure. issues that usually, honestly, just generate a referral for me anyways yeah. to let them go see some 
someone who's more of a specialist in that area. But when it comes to consistently what I see in couples mm-hmm. that I can help them with, it's usually this. It's the it's the sense that my sexuality is something that needs to be fed, and it's that consumerist view. Sure. And you are at the demand of my sexual need. Yeah. And if you don't meet it somehow, you're being a bad spouse, and I have the freedom to go get it fulfilled. However, I want yeah. to go get it fulfilled. Mm. Now, on the up- opposite side, if you're the spouse whose need is somewhat lower here, mm-hmm. uh, I want to take seriously that, yes, your, your spouse has a higher sexual appetite, and, and we need to be trying to fulfill that sexual appetite. Sure. Not perfectly, not at the drop of a hat necessarily, but you need to be sacrificing. And really, that's the counter to the sort of consumerist model of sex and sexuality is a self-sacrificial model of sex Mm -hmm. and sexuality. So that the one who has the lower sexual appetite is looking to serve Mm -hmm. more, even more than maybe they feel comfortable with, maybe even initiate at times. Mm Which would be wonderful uh, yeah. for the one who has the the higher sexual drive to actually be surprised by their spouse initiating sex with them. Sure. And then for the other one whose sex drive might be higher, that they're trying to sacrifice for their spouse in the sense that they're not always pushing and prodding for this. Sure. That we can have physical connection that doesn't have to lead to sex. We can cuddle on the couch and sure. watch a movie or hold hands or I can give you a kiss, even a passionate kiss, and it doesn't mean I'm pushing you towards the bedroom. Yeah. Right? And and so they're going to be trying to sacrifice in themselves that their sexual needs may not be met all the time. And if both spouses are willing to serve the other in this, what you will find is that both are well taken care of. Mm. It's when you get to that position where you are demanding that your needs be met, mm. either my need sexually or my need for less sexuality. I'm going to demand that they be met. Uh, that's when you begin to get into trouble. Yeah, that for sure. And, you know, you've already begun to discuss this already of a a faithful view. I think one phrase you've used previously is how do, how do we serve as good sexual shepherds yes. of our spouses? A, a, a faithful view of this is going to rest on the fact, it sounds like what I'm hearing you say is that this is not the make or break thing for our marriage. Right. And that brings up an idea that I've heard you mention before. In, in premarital counseling with couples, as yeah. I've watched you counsel couples, yeah. the bewilderment that can sometimes come across couples' faces when you ask them, okay, like think of the, the top five couples you know in your life. Right. And then you ask them, all right, if you were to, if, if they're the most satisfied people in your life and you ask them to rate the top three things that lead to their satisfaction, yeah. the reality is, is that, that hard data, the hard data on this area of life is that none of them would list sex in their top three of life satisfaction. That's exactly right. And you can take this for marriages. You can take this for singles as well, yeah. where it's like you can go and find, go find someone who seems like they have the life that you would like to have lived in, in the sense that they seem well satisfied and they seem like they give back. They just seem like the type of person, man, I wish I felt about my life and were the type of character that that person is. And then go ask them, hey, what makes you this way? What What has led to this stable satisfaction, joy, contentment, whatever it is? Mm-hmm. And sex and sexuality and having a lot of sex with a lot of people is not going to be on that list. Yeah. It's just exactly. not. It's not. It, not to say that it's zero, but mm. it's not in the top three. And what's so bewildering about that is, is that we so easily fall prey to the lie mm. that if we have, <clears throat> excuse me, a whole bunch of sex with young, beautiful people for the rest of our lives, mm-hmm. right, 
then we're going to be satisfied. That somehow that will lead to the satisfaction of my sex drive and sexual life, which will lead to the satisfaction of me. Hmm. And both of those are false. Yeah. Sex and sexuality is satisfied as I sacrifice and shepherd someone else, hmm. not as I stand up and demand that my sexual needs be met. Hmm. That's powerful, man. And so I guess a good question would be, you've talked about this attitude of a self-sacrificial mindset towards sex, of I'm, I'm serving and shepherding the needs of my spouse in this. What are some pra- other practical ways this begins to manifest itself as you've counseled and encouraged people in your office? A couple of things come to mind. One, when the configuration is that it's the female that has the higher sex drive sure. than the male. Which happens about a quarter of the time. Sure. Okay. And so for 75% of men who might listen to this podcast, they're like, man, <laughs> why isn't that me? <laughs> yeah. Right. And they think that somehow that would have been perfect. It's not. Mm. That configuration actually has the highest amount of guilt and shame in this area. Mm. The man feels guilty that his sexual appetite isn't as strong as hers. Like there's something wrong because our society really has cast the male as the Mm. insatiable sexual animal. Yeah. And then the female feels bad for having the higher sexual appetite. Like why doesn't my husband desire me more? Mm. Am I doing something wrong? Is there, you know, some way I could be or or whatever, or or did God make me wrong? Am am I more masculine and male than I am female? No, there's, there's nothing in the Bible that determines that one gender is definitively and always more sexually aggressive or has the higher libido than the other. In fact, whenever we look at this, if we see something like 1 Corinthians 7, then 1 Corinthians 7 is an equal. Do not withhold yourself from one another. Hmm. right? And yeah. when we see some sort of exchange, we see exchange both in the sense of male for female, when we see something like cult prostitutes or whatever, but also female for male, when you see women who are willing to sell things in order that their husband might come into them and they might have their conjugal rights. So <laughs> yeah. it, it happens in both genders, okay. and that's it's totally fine in the sense that it doesn't matter which one of you has the higher sexual drive. Okay. That, that's not a determinant of what is moral or immoral. Hmm. So a lot of times I like to take the guilt and shame if they're in that configuration where uh, females' drive is higher and, and try to just relieve them of that. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean anything different than if the males was higher in the sense that they still want to serve each other. Male still wants to push himself to have sex more often with his wife than maybe he feels comfortable. And and wife wants to push herself to be okay with less sexual activity than maybe she would feel comfortable with. The other thing that I often uh, get inside of the counseling room when it comes to this Hmm. is frequency. Hmm. How frequently should we be having sex as a couple? This is where all the dudes are going to lean in real quick and be like, okay, like, what can you actually guarantee me here? <laughs> right. That's exactly, that's what people want to know. Yeah. And the answer is there's a really wide road and two ditches. Mm, that's a really good articulation of it. Like, yeah. It, 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 because so much of this actually, I think what you're saying, what you're going to say is so much of this depends on season of life. So many, so much of it depends on stage of of marriage as well. Like what are what are physical aspects, what are uh, emotional aspects going into it? But even then, 
giving a hard and fast so many times a week just sets so many people up for failure. And shame and guilt. And shame and guilt. You would not believe how many people I see because they heard someone somewhere give some well-intentioned wisdom that you need to be having sex at least two or three times a week. Yeah. Right? And if you're having sex less than that, then there's something wrong with you. Yeah. Right? So that does breed the question of, okay, what is a good wide road mm-hmm. in the two ditches that you point people to? Yeah. So what I say is, is if you want or are having sex so often you are physically and emotionally wearing a partner out, hmm. that's one ditch. Yeah. Right. And there are some guys and some girls I know, in fact, who are so sexually driven, they could have sex multiple times a day. And and still wonder if they could be satisfied. I don't know how you would do anything else in life if that were you, right? But, <laughs> yeah, um, for real. I, I just don't know. Um, but that is true. I, I have counseled people for whom they will report, and it's not just a male thing, though predominantly male, where they will report that their sexual appetite just always seems to be active. Yeah, for sure. And so if that's you and... Your spouse feels like they must always respond to that. You are going to wear them out both physically and emotionally very quickly. Mm. And then sex is always going to be an ordeal. Rather than it being connective, rather Mm. than it shepherding the both of you well, it's going to be something that you just have to do that's exhausting. And it's going to take on a sort of duty and shame and guilt Hmm. piece to it. Yeah. Okay. So now it could be that you have spouses, especially, you know, and it, for, in whatever season, mm-hmm. whatever season, but you could have spouses that are having sex as often as multiple times a day and they both love it and it's how they're able to do it. It is exceedingly rare that that would be true. And it also is exceeding rare, exceedingly rare that that would be normative for the entire duration of their marriage. Right. That's exactly right. So, which is why I say there might be a season. Yeah. Right. Because there's this old adage, which is just at the point where you figure sex and sexuality out with your spouse <laughs> yeah. is when something changes. Oh, uh, yeah. Right? That's a, good, that's a good truth. A body changes, kids come along, there's some sort of stress, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, and men are relatively simple sexual machines. What works for us works for us pretty stably across our lifetime. Women are not, though. Women's bodies change. Mm-hmm. And so just when you figure it out as a couple, oftentimes that's when change occurs. So all that to say that like the one ditch is, okay, we've got to be, you're, you're forcing sexuality so often Mm -hmm. that you are damaging the very foundation of the marriage itself. Mm -hmm. Someone does not look forward to you coming home. The sound of your voice. <laughs> Seriously. Or, or even like a warm embrace is off-putting. Because yeah, because, it's, oh my it's gosh. so much attached to it. Yeah, the, it's it's going <laughs> to lead to some place that I don't want it to, right? Yeah. Or there's going to be, I, I'm going to have to tell you no again, and as soon as I say no, you're going to sulk around and you're going to make me feel guilty and shame-ridden, right? That's the one ditch you want to stay out of. Mm. The opposite ditch is... I don't know the last time we had sex. Hmm. Right? Yeah. And that's that's a terrible ditch to be in. That's that's the ditch where it's like, okay, you guys are just functional friends. You're not yeah. much more than that. And you need to be more than that. That's what spouses are. Mm. So you need to continue to be sexually connected to one another. Yeah. 
Now, again, there may be seasons yeah. where that sexual connection is once a month. You know, it, it, when it gets much further out than once a month is usually when I begin to get a little worried. Yeah, you know, I think the thing is a, a good adage, a, 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 however you say it, a, a good Ad, saying. Yeah, yeah. At, is it adage? I, I don't know. Okay. Yes. That's why I, I think that's what we say, but then you just said adage, and I went, I, I don't know. <laughs> I am now confused. Speaking of confusion, yeah. I remember one mentor I had in college as as I was transitioning into marriage, and as this person, they got married later in life as well. They had the the wisdom to tell me as a young man, you know, there are some seasons in life where, believe it or not, sex is going to seem way less appealing than going to sleep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like the ki- mm-hmm. the season of raising young kids, the season of of just so much is demanded of you on a professional level of right. of your vocation. Uh, the season of you know physical limitations being met right. of you've moved to a new city, like you've planted your life in some new place and it's before you know it, it's four weeks that have gone by and you're just so exhausted Yeah, and it's just a season of exhaustion. Yeah. And I remember thinking that that's, that's not going to be the case. There's no way. There's no way. But then the reality is, is that when life sets in, the fact is that it's difficult to, to, to realize that this is something that takes more than just a single act. It's it's something that goes into yep. a lot of conversation, a lot of time, a lot of yep. other forms of intimacy actually go into it. That's right. Than just the moment in time. And so so yeah, there's what you've said, this idea of four weeks is is the other ditch or beyond. Yeah, I yeah. can't remember the last time. Yeah. I think that that's, that's helpful because it's, Resting on the idea that life is actually really hard. Yeah. Well, and the, the other thing is when, when you begin to get beyond a month, mm-hmm. which, again, there might be some seasons where that that just has to be true. Like, like I knew a couple mm-hmm. for whom she was going through some intense cancer treatments. And, you know, it, it, it was months. Mm. I think four, five, six months at least, you know, and they stayed connected though, but just in different ways. Yeah. Right. So this isn't, this isn't like a absolute hard and fast rule, but in general, under most situations in life, you begin to get beyond a month, but without any sort of sexual interaction. And what happens is the vulnerability it takes to be sexual with Mm. each other becomes scary. It Mm. becomes safer not to have sex. Mm. You train yourself into these habits Mm. than to to have sex because sex is an act of vulnerability. Mm. And so it becomes much safer just to stay in the I'm not sexually active, I'm not sexual right now mode. And you Mm. want to get out of that. You want to be connected and be vulnerable. And and when you withdraw into that place of I don't want to be known, I don't want to be vulnerable, you are actually not just retreating sexually, you're retreating emotionally too. Yeah. And you're starting to live mm. in that uh, place where you're living parallel lives, yeah. not connected lives. Mm. In terms of what you were saying of it's an act of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's beautiful to think about it in that way because that's what it is. But yep. when it when the time does increase, you're right. Yep. That, that's, that's the issue. And so, so what you said, Josh, is the two ditches seem to be every time I see you, I want to have sex yeah. versus I can't remember the last time that we did. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of this relic versus this instant sort of thing that we always do. Yeah. And it's, 
everything sort of in between yeah. the mean? Or it, you said it's a really broad road, but is there any further definition that you can give? Yeah, so I think that sex as one aspect of a genuinely connected and intimate life is probably hmm. the the framework and paradigm you want to be working through. Yeah. So oftentimes I will talk about how for me physical intimacy is just one facet of the domain of intimacy. Sure. And this is what my dissertation research is on right now is intimacy and the biblical concept domain of intimacy. So I explicitly reserve the right for the Lord to make me smarter on this issue. (laughs) Which is a fancy way of saying I might be the wrong. Um, I I don't think that I am. This is you know, 15 years or so of counseling experience now. But intimacy has, as a part of it, spiritual intimacy, physical intimacy, emotional intimacy, recreational intimacy, intellectual intimacy, and maybe even more than that, but but at least those five different facets. And that emotional intimacy and physical intimacy in the sense of sex and sexuality tend to be the intimacies that pay the highest dividends for couples. Hmm. And so sexuality cannot be divorced mm. from emotional intimacy. And the moment, and, and again, whoever is a sexual aggressor, again, usually men, can do this thing where it's like, well, no, this is just an activity I need. I need this release, hmm. right? No, no, no. It is part, a part of a full-orbed idea of being connected to someone else. It's not about you. It's not about your release. It's about us as a couple Mm. coming together and being known Mm. uh, and being received. And so uh, everything in the middle for me is, are we having an appropriately intimate marriage? Are we sharing and being received? Are we being vulnerable, being heard from an emotional perspective and an intellectual perspective and a recreational perspective? and a physical perspective with the largest and biggest and most foundational aspect being a spiritual perspective. Mm. That's so helpful, Josh. And I've actually heard you use that foundation in premarital counseling, because if I understand what you're saying, and you can clarify this, being a faithful sexual shepherd of our spouses means that we understand our intimacy is more than just the physical act of being vulnerable with one another in a physical way through sexual intercourse. Right. It's something that's so much bigger and it, it requires me to be open to the fact that my spouse needs connection more than just this one domain. That's right. And that's actually, I think that that's a really helpful framework to help people think about how can I shepherd this? Because if a husband who is, more prone to sexual uh, arousal and yep. has a higher sex drive, like you said, than, uh, I guess that's the right way of saying it, than his wife, then it helps him to think through the lens, not just of when was the last time I partook in this need that I have, yeah, but when was the last time I actually met my spouse or wife, excuse me, yeah. um, in the field of her highest felt need of intimacy. Right, which is usually emotional. Yeah. And it's when you begin to stand up for each one of those, like I have this sexual intimacy need that has to be met and you have to meet it. And a spouse that says, hey, I have this emotional intimacy need and you have to meet it. That's when you get into these cycles of isolation rather than cycles of intimacy. Hmm. And so the goal is always to serve the other. 
you yeah. know. And so for men, oftentimes they need to understand your wife often feels the most sexually desirous of you when you are most emotionally available to her. Yeah, and even emotionally vulnerable. That's right. Mm-hmm. And for women, your uh, men often feel most uh, emotionally vulnerable with you when you're most sexually available to them. Hmm. And so it's this mutuality there that you're serving one another. Hmm. Um, and if you're doing that, again, same way that we were talking about uh, with just sexuality, but with intimacy in general, if you're serving one another and really looking to help the other feel connected, things tend to work pretty well. It, but hmm. it takes intentionality. Yeah, and it takes work. Yeah. That shows you that... You know, people will say something, uh, another expression I've heard, sex starts in the kitchen. Yeah. And actually, sex starts outside of just these sensual, physical realm. Right. It starts in your connectivity to your spouse outside of uh, just this one domain. That's right. And the consumerist view of sex says, this is actually just the thing that I partake of. It's a, it's a good that I exchange. That's right. And uh, For either favors or whatever, rather than... Right. Um, rather than something that's about someone else. That's right. Sees it in isolation, an yeah. isolated need that I have, like breathing or eating. Yeah. Josh, that's such a helpful understanding of what a biblically faithful shepherding mindset looks like in terms of how we shepherd our spouse's sexuality in marriage uh, and how we help one another do that. I think for the sake of time today, we're going to need to pause here. But we should also say again, we know that this is an area where in your marriage and in your relationship with your spouse— um, this may be a challenge for you. We don't want anyone to feel any sense of condemnation or shame for this. There's grace for you. There's also help here at our church, uh, either Reverend Squires or I would love to meet with you to discuss any outside perspective you might need on your marriage, uh, but also any issues that you and your marriage are struggling with outside of this domain as well. And if you'd like to reach out to him, you can do so by reaching out to him at jsquires at firstpresscolumbia.org, or you can email me, jadair at firstpresscolumbia.org. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope that you can join us again next time as we continue our conversation and wrap up our series on sexuality with a discussion of what it looks like in terms of living a celibate life and what it even might look like for this struggle in the future.